Welcome to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast, a show where we discuss what's wrong with healthcare and talk with innovative companies disrupting the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we explore strategies to help employers lower healthcare costs and build a better health plan. Now here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Nancy Reardon from Maestro Health. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm excited to be here. So here's our game plan. What we seek to do here on this show is challenge status quo purchasing approaches and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to lower their health care costs and improve value for their employees. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Absolutely. I really want to thank you for actually putting this together starting in 2017. I've been listening to quite a few of them when I travel, and it's interesting to hear everyone's perspectives and the innovations that are happening in the industry. And I think you're helping us bring all of these solutions together because at the end of the day, it's one industry and we can't have all of these silos. So thank you for putting this together. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. To get us started, just going to read a brief bio about you so our audience has a little bit of context about who they're listening to, and then we'll get into it. So Nancy Reardon is the Chief Product and Strategy Officer for Maestro Health. Nancy joined the Maestro team in January of 2015 and is focused on product development and innovation and expanding Maestro's spectrum of employee benefit management solutions. Nancy spent 25 years with Aetna prior to joining Maestro Health, beginning her career as a benefits analyst and growing into numerous leadership roles within the company. Most recently, Nancy served as Deputy Chief of Staff to the CEO of Aetna for five years, as well as Head of Strategy for Aetna's specialty business, where she drove business planning, operational planning, and collaboration within the organization. Anything else you'd like to add to that, Nancy? I think that's a great start. I think the only other thing that makes my perspective a a little bit differently is I've had personal instances within the healthcare industry, so I've gotten to experience it from the best and the worst perspective. So when I look at innovation or things that are broken in the healthcare delivery or the way that benefits are delivered, I come from a personal experience. My mother was given a very wrong diagnosis, so much so she was told to get her affairs in order. She was gonna be dying within a month, and I'm happy to say that was 15 years ago. And my son was in a near fatal car accident. So I bring the perspective of actually experiencing the healthcare industry as a consumer, along with actually living and growing up within the healthcare industry. Well, those are are really, really important perspectives, and I'm sure we're going to get a lot of insight from from you today. So Nancy, as someone who spent so long with one of the big insurance carriers in the U.S., why did you decide to leave and join Maestro Health? I think I gained a lot of knowledge and experience by working with Aetna. And while I was there for 25 years, I had the great privilege of being able to go into different areas at at Aetna, from specialty to working, you know, with the CEO to being in national accounts and then also on the network side. Mm -hmm. And it came a point in my career that I wanted to be able to go work for a company who was nimble enough to actually identify and address changes within the healthcare industry. And lucky for me, the CEO of Maestro actually worked for Aetna. He was part of the acquisition that Aetna made with Payflex to get into the consumer-directed industry. So I established a relationship with Rob Butler, and from that, we kept in contact. And when I was at the point that I didn't 
feel challenged and that I could grow not only as a person and affect change in the healthcare industry, it was time for me to move on. And Maestro, with the way Rob articulated his vision and what we could do to impact some of the deficiencies that existed in the healthcare delivery ecosystem, I felt it was time to make that move. We often talk about what's wrong with our healthcare system on this show. And you guys have got some interesting statements about our healthcare system on your website that lead me to believe that people at your organization have a strong opinion about this. And in particular, there's one quote from your website that says, the game is rigged. Healthcare system doesn't play fair. The game is designed to skyrocket employer costs and HR administrative burdens year after year. And so I I agree wholeheartedly with that statement. But can you tell us what you mean when you say the game is rigged and explain to our audience how the healthcare system is designed for higher costs? Sure. I, I think there's two components in there. And I think I'm going to start off with the, with the complexity. I don't think that anyone in the industry has done a great job in kind of uh, removing the complexity that exists, not only on the healthcare delivery side, but those people that actually have to access it. And I think that's part of the reason when you don't understand, you take someone's word for it. So when you get a bill from the hospital, you don't know any different. It's not like you have another comparison of a bill that you can look at and say, hey, you know, when I shopped last at Best Buy or I shopped last at Amazon, there's no comparison. You get the bill after the service is delivered. And I think that doesn't create a very effective person to consume or to pay the bill. So complexity adds a lot to the whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And when we say that the game is rigged is that there isn't, when, when you think about networks, and you think about the companies that create these provider networks, they're based on increasing the MLR. That's how they make money. And no one is actually looking at the real cost of the service. And I think what we're trying to do is to bring that transparency into the market so that people understand that most people pay $500 for the service. They don't pay tens of thousands of dollars for the service and that they should be looking at the cost to charge ratio at each of the facilities and other providers so that they understand what the reasonable price is. You know, you go to Amazon or you go to any other consumer site, you can go and say, listen, I can go pay $25 to get that headset at Best Buy or I could go to Amazon and pay 17 or I could go local and play 35. It's my decision because I have the opportunity to say what's more convenient for me. Unfortunately for healthcare, most of us become, you know, a member and then we're forced to be a consumer and we don't have the tools or the knowledge to be effective consumers because we get the bill after it then you know, the service has been provided. You can't negotiate when you're running into the emergency room and you're bleeding or you don't feel well. You just want someone to say, listen, I don't care what it costs, just make me feel better. And I think we as an industry need to get involved in that ecosystem so we can be that advocate for the member. You mentioned something at the beginning of your response there. You referenced the MLR, MLR's medical loss ratio. And, you know, since the Affordable Care Act, right, the insurance carriers are are required to pay a, a percentage of claims for every dollar of premium. You know, it's interesting. That's really created sort of a misaligned incentive because if they have to pay 85 cents on the dollar towards claims, the only way for them to grow a two or three or a 4% margin is off a bigger number. When I think the game is rigged, that's what I think of as far as the fully insured marketplace is 
there really isn't a lot of incentive for any of these public insurance companies that are traded on Wall Street. There's really not any incentive for them to lower healthcare costs because lowering healthcare costs would actually decrease their revenue. Their shareholders don't want that. I'm glad you mentioned that, but I wanted to <laughs> shed a light on, on that MLR comment for, for our audience there. No, you're absolutely right. And I think when they develop their what they're going to pay a provider within the network, it's, it's not based off of cost charge or exactly what the charge or the cost of that facility has for that particular procedure. It's based upon how they're going to generate revenue. And, you know, we found instances, you know, within a network that you could get procedure A, same network, and hospital B, and it costs 1000 But if you traveled 15 miles out, same network, different hospital, it's, you know, half of that cost. And you have to step back and wonder, well, why? Right? Because it's not based on the actual fact of how much the procedure or that stay costs. It's based upon how they're going to generate revenue. Well, I think that's a good transition into talking a little bit more about Maestro Health. And so what is the the Maestro Health product and service and, and what problems are you specifically attempting to solve? So for Maestro, what we were trying to do when when Rob came up with Maestro Health is create a single comprehensive platform that was designed to leverage every member and or patient interaction met with and we continue to meet with, you know, HR professionals. And as you said, you know, in the beginning, you know, they are stressed. It's complex. Every year they're being dealt a smaller and smaller budget. And with the talent war that's out there, it's how can you make the HR professional focus on talent and remove those complexities. So for us, we were trying to create a set of assets under one single platform that we could go to the HR professional and say, Maestro can handle 60 to 70% of what makes up your employee health and benefits program. And for us, we felt that those were benefits administration. So uh, online enrollment, help you pick a plan, manage your eligibility, billing, and so forth. It was benefit accounts which is HSA and FSA. And lastly, which kind of brings us all together, is to be a self-funded health plan management administrator, which means we do the things that you are out there with the TPA. So we take calls, we pay claims. But the other things that we do that are over and above to me is that, you know, we have a, a care management team of about 30 people that are employees of Maestro. We don't outsource that because we believe that connection point is really critical. And then we also look at innovative ways for our members to access the healthcare industry. I know from a lot of the podcasts that you have done in the past, you know, direct primary care is one of those topics that I was listening to uh, through your podcast. And we're looking at ways that we can create another way for our members to access care that is reasonable, that has a high quality, and is transparent for them. And put ourselves within that ecosystem so they don't feel like, oh my God, I don't I don't feel well, or they've had an acute care, and they're being thrown into the healthcare system. They know because we've had interactions with them before all of this has happened, that they've established a relationship with us and our employees. So it's not a surprise for them to either reach out to us or us to reach out to them. So for us, our product is about the single comprehensive platform that's meant to improve engagement and lower the overall healthcare cost equation. Great. Let's start with the TPA component. So, you know, you guys indicate that you have a 
a crawl, walk, run approach with clients. Can you describe what you mean by that and you know what it means to a client? Sure. So I think the biggest thing, and, and it's part of our DNA at Maestro, is that not one size fits all, and we're not a perfect match for every employer that's out there. So it's important for us to have a very consultative discussion with the employers to find out where they are, what their comfort level is, what are they trying to achieve with their benefits program. Mm -hmm. So when we think about access and we think about our self-funded, there's ways that you can get to what we would consider run. So for us, for crawl is how can we help you with your plan design? And if you're in, there's ways that, you know, do you put specialty pharmacy within the medical? Do you carve it out? Things like that, that we have those thoughtful conversations and we might be able to get the employer to adjust those, but it's still backed by their comfort and their comfort is probably having that network in the background. So for us, that's kind of like the crawl. You're getting them to understand how they can affect change and behavioral change within their employee population and to understand the chronic conditions of their employee population. But crawl is really, you know, getting them to begin to understand that they can have a very positive effect, not only on the cost, but on the overall productivity of their employees. So it's mostly plan design, consultative, backed up with that kind of safety net of having a network. So that's crawl. Walk is beginning to understand that the biggest variation in cost is probably in the facility side of, of a network equation. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that, Michael? And <laughs> Whole, wholeheartedly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so for us is that you're beginning to get to the more transparent and actually paying a reasonable cost for a service that's provided, that's really run. So walk for us is you match up a physician network mm-hmm. with a you know, reasonable price or fair market reference-based price hospital reimbursement methodology. And then run is you're kind of like all in, right? I am paying a reasonable price across providers and facilities, and we're going into those areas and talking with providers so that they understand what this particular company is willing to pay for that services that they're offering. Got it. So, so really, it is a progressive approach to helping employers understand that there's different types of provider reimbursement that they can include in their plan. And obviously, you know, that's going to be a lever on, you know, what the actual cost is. And, and so on the, the left-hand side would be your, your traditional TPA and network and as you move to the right, you know, integrating um, reference-based pricing uh, for facilities, and then the run is reference-based pricing for just about everything. Yeah, that is correct. And there's other variations of that. In some of your marketing material, um, you guys talk about people-friendly reference-based pricing. And so what does that mean? You know, great question. I think for us, we, you know, reference-based pricing has a bad connotation to it in the market because it's been around. It's People act like it's new, but it's been around for many, many years. It's it's almost like everyone can define usual and customary in many different formats. And and we believe that reference-based pricing kind of comes with this luggage. And what we wanted to do is create another term to call it people-friendly. Because we believe that there are changes and new innovations that have happened since reference-based pricing has been, you know, introduced to the market. Um, I think one of the things that we do is that we look to deploy, you know, advocacy and navigation to help members understand what steps they can take when they receive a bill. And how to engage directly with us or the provider. That didn't exist in the old reference-based pricing world. We want to make sure that they understand that we're an extension of them 
and that if something happens, that we're there to kind of remove the complexity and also be their advocate and get them kind of out of the situation and let them go and heal or let their family member go and heal and give us the assignment to go solve that problem for them. And for us, that becomes that people friendly is that, you know, we become an extension of their family. We become an extension of that HR team to solve those problems for them. I think really it comes down to education. I mean, educating people on the fact that it's a little bit different, right? We're not relying on somebody else to set prices. You know, we as the employer, we're determining what we're going to reimburse for services. And as a result, there just needs to be a different approach to where you go and making sure that there's the upfront acknowledgement that you you need to make sure that that the facility you're going to is willing to accept the reimbursement, right? Absolutely. I I think in in the work that we're doing, you'll hear a lot of the word like safe harbor. And it's important in any time that you deploy any kind of reference-based pricing or what we call people-friendly pricing, is that you have safe harbor hospitals, that our team has gone into that community and made sure there is a hospital, a quality hospital, and providers that are willing to accept that reasonable price for the services that they're performing. And I think it's also important too, Michael, and I think this part gets lost, is that, you know, healthcare is local. And, and for our target market, which is the middle market, these employers live and spend money in that community. And oh, that yeah. hospital should be aware that it's not maestro insuring. It's not the maestro network. This is the employer. This is yeah. ABC company's employee who invests in that community. And they should be willing to work with that employer to provide a reasonable price for the services that they're performing on their employees or in or associates. And I think that's also an approach that we're taking when we go into the marketplace. It's not maestro. You're not, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's that employer who lives and works in that community. Traditional deductible and coinsurance, it doesn't really provide the right incentives to steer people to lower cost options, you know, in the network. And so what are you guys doing from either a benefit design or an employee engagement standpoint to really help steer people to lower cost, higher quality facilities, you know, and, and and I guess that question applies to any of the approaches, right? Either the crawl, walk or run approach. I I think it starts with navigation. I, I think we have to establish ourselves as a trusted advisor within that relationship with that member. And I, and I think that's why it's critical that we have the assets that we do. Today, benefit administration is probably the only time that you have a captive audience because most of us have to go through open enrollment once a year in an active state. I believe that no one today is leveraging that experience to collect how every member wants to be contacted. And I think that, one, if you could do that, then you understand how to connect with Michael and that Michael is maybe a texter. Right. And if we can recognize that Michael is having some health care, that we can reach out to you and say, come to us. That would be one. Two is that we've seen, and I think this is where the future is going, what I almost consider, you know, navigational care is that there should be, as long as it's not an emergency, which you should go to an ER, that mm-hmm. before you reach out for any care, that you should call a number. And that person can help you say, listen, based upon what you're telling me, let me help you make an appointment with your PCP or based based on what you're telling me, you have access to telehealth. Let me connect you to telehealth. Let me send you a web link. And within 30 minutes, you will be able to be satisfied. And if you're not, call us back 
And again, we will direct you to a provider appointment. But at that point in time, you're kind of directing people and navigating them to the right side of care, right? They're not going to the ER because they don't feel well. You're directing them to telehealth. And I think that is probably the most efficient way for, you know, let's say 70% of what ills us today if you have a sinus infection or if you have the flu. And then you're navigating to them if it's something, you know, more complex to a set of providers that you have seen through the data that you collect who are most efficient with high quality. Got it. So that navigation piece, that is core to the service that you guys are providing. It's something that we're continually looking at and we're continually building upon, right? I don't think you're ever going to be done because we have to recognize how people are, you know, consuming the service and being able to adapt to that. So I would say like most of the industry, it's probably in the crawl stage and we have to figure out how to leverage technology as much as we can. So we're meeting people where they are and inserting that personal contact when it's necessary. I would agree with you. I mean, I think it's, it's in its infancy for sure, because it's a paradigm shift because a lot of people aren't used to having that sort of resource that they can go to. I mean, most people are used to, oh, well, I feel sick. I just, I just need to go to the doctor, right? No, most people aren't used to having a resource where they can call and they can get, you know, that sort of care and, and, you know, navigation from. So I think it's something that will get, you know, more common over time, but paradigm shift takes a while. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think it's also what you said earlier, because I think this is going to be helpful no matter where the healthcare industry goes. It's about education. I think most people don't understand, one, if the employer has it as part of their benefit plan, telehealth, it's not really marketed. It's not like in everyone's kind of face to say you could go there. And second, I don't believe that individuals know that you don't need an employer to go use telehealth, that you could go (laughs) into any site and help yourself. So I I think it's also getting the message out there and educating them that they have all of these places that they can go get care when they need it under these circumstances and know the cost differential, you know, so you're making an informed decision and they don't have that today. Let's talk about pharmacy for for a second. Is the employer able to carve out the RX portion or do you have a, a PBM component to your services? We're agnostic. You can bring your own PBM. It's something that we're looking to get involved in in the future. I probably prefer pharmacy benefit administrator more than a pharmacy benefit manager. But it's something that we believe that we have to get involved with because RX um, is an important part of the overall healthcare journey and makes up a large portion of what, you know, the employer spends money at. So we're looking and that's something that hopefully we're going to, you know, be able to deploy over the next two years is get into that space. I think right now it's it's more important to look at specialty pharmacy than regular generic brand pharmacy because I'm sure you've seen the studies from ESI that shows that the trend of uh, pharmacy spend is kind of tailing off a bit or flat, whereas specialty pharmacy has this huge hockey stick curve. And, and so for us, we're looking at ways that our care management team can get involved in looking at changing the site of care for specialty because that, that's a huge cost. Where you have that drug injected or applied or whatever they do, I'm not a pharmacist, (laughs) it matters if you have it done in the hospital, if you have it done in the doctor's office, or if you have it done inside your home. So we're looking at that. We're also utilizing technology to understand the dosage. A lot of these drugs, you'll get a 30-day supply and find out that it doesn't work for you. You used it for two days, but the employer has paid for 30 days of it. 
So, right. you know, we have to get to the point on the drugs that have high interaction that, you know, you get a lower dose and see if it works. And if it doesn't, you're not expending 30 days of something that you're not using. So that is our attention right now, because a lot of the costs that we are seeing from the employers that come with Maestro, we're trying to affect change. And I think one of the ones that just happened for us is not only did we change the site of care, but we also realized that if the member could lose 10 to 15 pounds, it would change the dosage, which would cut the cost almost by half. So wow. not only did we in, engage and find some place for this drug to be administered, we actually deployed our nurse coaches to work with a member to see if there's a plan on either nutrition or exercise or things that we could do to reduce their weight so that the cost to them and the employer would be significantly reduced. Let's talk about clinical programs for a second, because that's one of the things that, that you mentioned, you know, as a potential differentiator for, for Maestro. Care management companies, disease management programs with insured carriers, TPAs, I mean, been around forever. I mean, obviously the intent there is to target and engage those folks with chronic disease and illness and, and help them manage their, their conditions. So, you know, they don't end up in the hospital and, and, uh, you know, drive higher costs within the plan. Quite frankly, the results of these care management programs, they're generally pretty poor. I mean, engagement is, is generally below 5%. They generally do a terrible job of even tracking impact. What's your opinion as to why these programs have really failed traditionally and what are you doing differently to get better results? You know, great question. In, in my opinion, I think the way that they haven't been as successful as they could be is that most times, if you think about care management, and I kind of t take it in kind of three, three different buckets, you know, you have the, like the wellness component. You have what I would consider nurse coaching, which focuses on chronic condition management. And then you have kind of like acute care and you are. And I think for acute care and UR, those are pretty standard, right? Case managers, you know, you get into the hospital, you had a heart attack, you're going to get a phone call. And I think those costs and that management of that population, for the most part, is done pretty well today. The two parts that I don't believe are done well today is because most people that you want to engage because they have to be on a nutrition plan or they need a little extra boost in, you know, getting more active or, or you know, making sure that if they have diabetes, that they're doing their test strips, they're seeing the eye doctor, they're seeing the foot doctor, is the people that tend to be in those programs are the people that are engaged. Typically, those you don't have to effectively manage every day. And I think that's why those programs haven't been successful. What we need to do and what we're trying to do at Maestro is what I call engage the non-engageable, right? Is that every member has a different path to their healthy and one size does not fit all. The way to engage you, Michael, is different than the way to engage Nancy. And I shouldn't be applying the same program for you as it would be for me. And I kind of look at that you know, the best example that I have is even a diabetic. And there are a lot of point solutions out there in the market, as you know, to attack diabetes because it's one of the top chronic conditions and it costs a lot of money. Yep. But when you look at how most of these point solutions manage them, they manage the whole diabetic population the same. So if you are diabetic and you could set, you know, your watch and the time based upon when you test how you go see the eye doctor and the foot doctor, and then Nancy is always in the ER, I should be getting most of the attention, whereas we should be self-serving you and be there when, we, when you need us and not asking every day, you know, did you get your test strips, right? It's almost like that silent use of technology. 
Is there a prescription there? Michael did her, did his test strip. Is there a charge there? Because it's about the time that Michael should have his eyes checked, right? It's almost like the silent, using technology to be the silent and then come in when you need us. And I think a lot of the programs do not adjust for the differences in, in how a member reacts and accesses healthcare. What type of engagement rates are you getting with those programs? We have started getting more and more involved in um, behavioral change and kind of like motivational interviewing. And the one thing that I think that we do differently is that we don't necessarily immediately go at the, you have diabetes. We want to understand the holistic view of the person, right? We want to understand how you access care. Do you have trouble getting to care? Why aren't you getting your pharmacy filled? And you're trying to get at the, the whole reason why this event happened. And for us, it's having that conversation to understand what are the primary causes that have you know, brought Nancy to the emergency room because I haven't controlled my diabetes. And through this motivational interviewing, we're finding out that the reason I'm there is that I can't afford test strips. Right. And that's a fundamental difference than Nancy, you know, is a terrible diabetic. It's how do you get involved in that beginning part? So our nurses are very passionate about each and every member that, that serves under Maestro. And they have those conversations to get at what is the root cause and trying to help them get at that, whether that's working with a provider and, and developing a single contract with that provider for that particular member. It's understanding a lot of people are either embarrassed or think that the lifestyle change they know they need to make is too much for them to make. And they're trying to you know, swallow the whole elephant. And I think through the work that our nurses do, which I believe is differentiating, is they try to find that little baby step that that member could take mm -hmm. and find success. And I think what they're finding is that as soon as they identify some of those baby steps and our members are having those successes, they're ready for the next one. They're ready for the next one. And we have examples that I believe is on our website, but we are more than happy to share of those interactions that our nurses have had and a positive impact for a member that before was unwilling to engage and has now has significantly changed their life where, you know, they've lost weight. They're not on high blood pressure medicine. They're not on, you know, diabetic medicine. And it, it, it's not like it happened overnight, but this was over a period of one or two years of just finding those little wins and understanding mm -hmm. and developing that relationship with a member. And for our, you know, engagement rates, and we're trying to measure this differently. And I think this also goes back to the question that you had before on measuring. And I think, for us, we're trying to find, you know, the most impactful measurement. It shouldn't be, hey, I made a phone call and I called Michael. It should be almost like this closed loop encounter. And that's something that we're working on because I think it's important. It's not for me, you know, working for Maestro, it's not good enough to say, hey, Michael, I think it's time for you to go see, you know, the foot doctor and call that engagement. I think engagement becomes we suggested you go see the foot doctor kick it up a notch, we made the appointment for you. And then we're looking at the claim data to make sure that you did. And then if you didn't, following up why you didn't, right? That would be, you know, the yeah. perfect scenario. And that's what our strategy is and, and the goal. And to me, that then becomes a new definition of engagement. What do you do in that situation? The member can't afford their test trips. What do you do? <laughs> well, I, I think there's a couple things that we do. It, it starts with what is their plan design? How is the contract and, you know, the summary plan description written? And, you know, getting back with the employer and determining, you know, within the self 
funded rules and regulations what exactly you can do. There has been instances that we've found through looking at websites and the ability for the member to apply to certain drug companies and get them for free. So we help facilitate, you know, some of those. But a lot of it is a conversation with the employer. A lot of it is looking at the plan design and finding partners that we work with that make kind of like an all-inclusive program for their diabetes. We talked a little bit earlier about making healthcare simple. Traditionally, it hasn't. Traditionally, it's <laughs> it's hard to navigate the system. And, and so you've talked a little bit about providing those, those resources to people. But do you want to just add any additional color on what you guys are doing to, to simplify the healthcare experience and journey for, for a member? I think it's twofold. I think it starts with education and communication. I believe that the way that our marketing team has approached communicating not only to employers and brokers, but also the way that they communicate to members has has made a difference. One of the examples that we use is even people don't even understand today the difference between like an HSA or FSA. They assume it's a spending account. They don't understand an SSA, HSA can follow them and an FSA spend it or you lose it unless they have the $500 carryover. We took an approach. Um, one of our uh, clients is a large university, and we looked at ways that we can engage the population in not only understanding their FSA and signing up for it, but how to use it. And we've used different communication channels, whether that show up for on-site open enrollment meetings and make it engaging and fun to sending them text messages and making it relevant. You know, put a headline in there. You get so much mail today, either that's email or text or phone, that if you put a headline in there that engages someone and and takes the fright factor out of it, we found that has been a critical part of how we engage. And what happened because of this communication program and the way that they approached kind of demystifying FSA for this particular client, we increased open enrollment by, I think it was 15 to 20% compared to the last five years, that more people understood the value of having an FSA compared to, you know, five years previous. I want to go back to something. So you you mentioned that, you know, you have your marketing people and generally marketing people are, are sending things out to, you know, your target perspective you know, customers or brokers trying to drive interest, right? I thought you said you're using your marketing folks and that style of communication to communicate to members as well. And that's, I believe, a completely different thought process, right? Most of the time, member communication is just, it's it's educational, but marketing is very different. So, I mean, do you want to talk about the, the nuance there? Because I think that's a, a big difference, yeah, I, I probably won't, you know, do them justice. But for us, we've kind of separated our marketing into, you know, kind of like, you know, corporate communications and an employer and employees. And most of our marketing looks at, and I think if you see that with our, you know, website and the marketing materials that you see as a consultant, it's edgy and it has different ways of creating headlines. And I think you'll enjoy this, Michael, because I now that I remember the headline, when they were doing the FSA, it said, insert eye roll here, right? Like another open enrollment, another benefit. But they put this big cinnamon bun in front of it and it had all of these, you know, catchy things and they simplified it. They got down to the point that matters to you as an employee. So for us, 
we think it's communication and education is so critical that we're leveraging this talent we have to not only help us drive business by communicating with employers and brokers and consultants, but we're utilizing this talent to say, oh my God, apply this to the employee population and help our HR professionals communicate their benefits more succinctly and to get people to read it. I do think that that is quite different than what 90% of the marketplace is probably doing today. Because what 90% of the marketplace is doing is they're just going to say, okay, here's an informational piece and I'm going to send that informational piece out and give the member education on it. I'm going to send the informational, but adding a marketing angle to it, generally you're going to have copywriters who are using language that attracts eyeballs, that attracts attention, that's going to get people interested. And then, you know, the example you gave there using visual images, again, to attract attention and get people because people get so much information thrown at them. I mean, I know for me, I'm deleting 95% of things that come to me, whether it's email print, whatever, it just gets thrown out because I have no capacity to look at everything. And I have to, in my mind, search for what's relevant. And so I think inserting a marketing perspective into your member communication thing, I think that's fairly innovative relative to what's happening in the marketplace. Thank you for that. The team is uh, unbelievable. They make us look uh, so good every day. And I think a lot of the employers that we talk to when they see some of our employee communication materials ask us actually what agency we use. And we say, it's us. So uh, appreciate the call out. I'm sure they're, they're loving that. It might be good in, you know, one of your podcasts to maybe invite, you know, Lauren Metzig. Oh, she just got married. Lauren Gershler, um, our chief marketing officer, because she has, you know, and her team have fantastic ideas on how to engage the population and using, you know, social media, using telephone, chat, what have you. But we have to figure out a way to deliver information, you know, to the employee when they need it and make it so that they open it and they don't delete it because I'm with you. I delete more than I look at. We haven't talked about fees yet. So, you know, a traditional TPA is going to have a, you know, a PEPM fee structure. So is that how you guys are set up or is it, you know, something different? You know, it's one of those depends. It depends on client by client. It depends on the crawl, walk, run strategy. It depends on, you know, what the comfort level of that client we've done. So even if you go all the way to run, Michael, and you're familiar with reference-based pricing, most of the players out in that space probably do a percent of savings or percent of bill charges. And we have some clients that are comfortable with that and will adapt to that. We've had some that said, ooh, rather have a PEPM and, you know, we work and, and do the configuration. So we're trying to get it to be simple and transparent as we understand how employers are moving over the cross walk, run kind of strategy. And then also the innovation part that's out there with what I call navigational care and then direct primary care. I mean, I truly believe that's going to be more prevalent in the future for us. And TPAs have to figure out how to integrate with that in my terms, because I think about strategy all the time is that how does our nurse team become an extension of the DPC? Right. Right. Because the one thing that we didn't address here is even fraud, waste and abuse. You know, if you can eliminate or even make it a rare occasion that it happens, that's savings that you're introducing into the healthcare delivery system. And I think it gets it gets missed in a lot of these innovations that we're talking about. So you guys have been in business since 2014. So we're in February of 2019. So since then, I mean, how many uh, how many clients and members have you accumulated? 
Um, right now, we have about we have over 500 employers and about uh, 1 million members. And are you guys geographically focused, or are you serving uh, employers you know throughout the country? We serve employers throughout the country, typically in the middle market space, which to us is anything under 10,000. Though we have clients that are above 10,000. Who do you think Maestro Health is a good fit for, and and who do you think it's not a good fit for? We are a great fit for a company who shares our beliefs and our vision that healthcare change has to come from all of the actors within that healthcare delivery system. Mm-hmm. So an employer for us has to come in willing to put in as much as they're going to get out. We talked about change and education before. And what we hear is that, yeah, that sounds great. I, I want to pay a fair price for that service, but, but don't change anything. Right. I would say that, okay, you know, we're going to have to kind of slow move that employer to understand that with change comes disruption, with disruption comes education, with education comes kind of like this interacting marketing, because you can't just do it once during open enrollment. It has to be a continual cycle and it can't be just paper and it can't be just email. It has to be text and, and you have to meet the member where they are and when they're ready to consume that, that health care. Nancy, I think we've talked about a lot of good things here. If there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? I think for me, um, it's more of what personally, what I don't like to hear, Michael, is everyone says, oh, you got to be a consumer of healthcare, consumerism. And for us, I think this is the biggest mistake that the industry is making. No one wants to be a consumer of healthcare. When you're consuming healthcare, it's you're sick. You have a chronic condition. I haven't found anyone that would sign up for any one of those two things. No. So we need to we need to recognize and prepare members before they become consumers. And I think that's a lot of the work that we're doing today with our, our marketing team and the way we approach the market. And secondarily, when someone becomes a consumer, that's when they need you the most. So you should have established that relationship when they're a member before they become a consumer. And I'm very passionate about that, if you can't tell. <laughs> so I know, I, for me, I, I, I think it's I think it's a great point. There is this whole notion of consumerism, and I think that comes from all the the waste and the price variation and and you know, this notion of arming people to be consumers. But for the most part, consumerism as a whole across the industry has failed miserably. And I think it just goes back to the fact that people don't have the support and the tools and the resources and the incentives to actually be consumers. Going back to what you said, getting connected with them before they have to be is really the key. Well, it, it is. And I, and I don't think that everyone has recognized that because I'll just even go from a personal example. My husband was sick when I was traveling. I was just like, I don't care how much it costs. Just call this number, right? Because you just want to feel better. So yeah. you, don't, you don't really want to shop when you don't feel well. And I think that's the whole thing that why we're not you know, making as much progress as we can, because people assume that I'm going to con- want to be a consumer when I don't feel well. And to me, I'd be like, well, what does it cost? Just make me feel better. How can people interested in Maestro Health get in touch with uh, your organization and, and learn more? I think the best way is to go to our website at maestrohealth.com. And there's a lot of things that you could learn from us as, there, as well as a button that you could say, hey, have someone contact me. I'd like to learn more. Well, with that, on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us. I think it's been a great discussion and a lot of good insights for our listeners. I appreciate the time, Michael. Great talking with you this afternoon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. 
If you liked what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Maestro Health's website and contact information. Lastly, be sure to check out some of the free resources on our website, including links to recent articles and books, as well as our Health Plan Innovator Scorecard, where you can benchmark your health plan against a plan that is truly designed to lower healthcare costs and improve value for your employees. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.